Here we go. What's happening? We're here. We are here. Can you believe this? We don't know what we're doing. <laughs> we're <pair of> fucking <laughs> amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> really are i listen i what i what i know for a fact is that i don't want to get rid of right yeah yeah so good people may have a little problem with the crying but <laughs> i don't know i think it'll be all right i explain it away it's yeah. like look, sometimes you just have to laugh at yourself that's exactly right i feel yeah. like i need to because you're looking my direction so i need to look your direction otherwise it looks if i'm over here i'll just fake it <laughs> <laughs> or I could take my glasses off and then I'll look in both directions. <laughs> Confuse everybody. Yeah. Wait. Yeah, exactly. Wait. Where is Lair in this recording? We don't know. Not by Sarah's <laughs> eyes. He's all over the place. <laughs> Welcome back. It's not your mama's therapy. It's good to be back. Listen, Holy it's crap. been a minute. It's been a little while. We're getting back on the horse. I'm here with Lair Torrent. That's right. Licensed marriage and family therapist that's true former actor oh former go there. almost nhl player uh, i was a little i was a little short of almost but sure almost. let's yeah. let's call it almost listen let's don't be almost don't yeah. shoot yourself short you know that's, okay like, all right don't forget author 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 that's new. yeah that is that's new. a true story that yep. is very new your book mm -hmm. is amazing thank you i've I've already purchased it for three friends and for my dad passive aggressively. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I happen to have a copy, oddly uh, enough. There when am is. I getting mine signed? I'm going to have to mail it to you with a self-addressed stamped envelope. <laughs> yes. And a check. God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this, this whole thing ain't cheap. I know. I imagine the therapy bills that you accrued while writing this book. Or should have. <laughs> if I were taking any of my own advice, I would have gotten myself a good shrink. Because be, be careful what you fucking wish for, man. Mm. Writing a book is no joke. Like everyone's like, mm. I think I want to write a book. Like, right. I think I get a book in me, really. Let's see how that goes. Uh. Up every morning at, before the sun. You know, mm -hmm. trying to write that shit. I did the, the Gwyneth Paltrow plan for COVID. The goop? Which she said that what we should plan? do is, you know, stay home and, um, you know, use the time wisely. And, you know, you can write a book or learn a foreign language or buy one of my $750 scarves. Bless. You know? Yeah. So I wrote a book. Right. It was either write a book or place Hawaiian stones in your vagina. And I'm glad you picked book. <laughs> can you get those on Goop? I'm pretty sure you can. They sand them down for you, though, so they're real comfortable. I would hope. You don't want to <laughs> DIY any of that. <laughs> what grade sandpaper should I be using for these stones? <laughs> oh, I'll just That's head to the fence out back. Just grab a couple off the... <laughs> Acreage line. Head down to the creek and grab a couple. <laughs> Save yourself a few shillings. Wait. <laughs> shillings? Hey, Gumna. Yeah. <laughs> We've now gone from Midwest to 
obnoxious um, how Americans think Londoners talk. It's true. Yeah. No. So that Midwest thing that you will, I always think it's what I was doing is more attributed to your neck of the woods. That's the, essentially upstate New York where everyone talks as though they have lips on their nose. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Oh. I never have thought about Out it there that in the way. Yard. Right. I'm like uh, when I talk to my aunt, she still lives way up there next to the Canadian border. And I'm like, oh, right. my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, there, you know, when you tell me about your surfing excursions and things like that, I'm like, oh, how nice was the ocean? How nice is that? <laughs> did the, the you? Old, the ocean. Did you head to the coast? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's brutal. All right. So, so today, aside from, uh, and we should probably put a disclaimer on this, that we will have topics to discuss. You and I will synaptically surf off of topic into 100%. whatever we find to be entertaining for you and I and funny. Right. Um, right. Hoping that somehow perhaps we hit on a nugget mm-hmm. of profundity for the listening audience. That's but exactly honestly, right. Often not caring because the funny is too, too good. It's too good. I, to the, to your point, I feel like I should let the listeners know that my goal in life, whenever talking to you is the wheeze laugh. Like oh. that's what I shoot for. So yeah, it's coming. I can feel right. it already. Yeah. I know we've, we've already heard a couple little ones. So you make me laugh from a place that makes me sound like I've been smoking for 20 years. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it it, it uh, comes from deep within my my body that that, uh, that wheezing laugh. Yeah, it's so. listen, it's that soul laugh is what mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I can't get the I can't get to the air. I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> right, right. We need to tell uh, Lindsay not to cut that. Like we need every no. gasping sound. Like I want periodically, people to I'll, I'll choke and cough on right. my own spit. I want people driving to wonder if you're okay. (laughs) Somebody check on them. Maybe send an email, you know? know. (laughs) Did he ever recover from that long? (laughs) An old man. It's my favorite. (laughs) You laugh with your whole ball sack. Is what it is. Like, <laughs> yeah, I try to. Right down in the sphincter region. In the plums. Down where, yeah, whichever rich blue hue. Okay. okay. So, yes. What's the here. topic of conversation now that mm-hmm. we've discredited ourselves enough? Wildly discredited ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the practices. I oh, wanted okay. to do an overview for people mm-hmm. listening to just kind of mm-hmm. get like a baseline for your methodology. And I know it's not just yours, but it's how you work with clients and get an understanding of like what the practices are, what we're going to be kind of talking about over the next few episodes. Cause we'll do deep dives into each of mm-hmm. them, but some people don't want to listen to that. Right. So like mm-hmm. we want to give them something that they can listen to and be cool with and get a basic understanding and then they can move on to other stuff. So, so let's start with those. If you want to give like an overview of your five practices. Sure. So you remember them? I do. (laughs) You're like coming through your book. Yeah. Wait, hold on. (laughs) There are five practices and I, I came about them quite honestly from, uh, what I perceived to be a whole, in my profession, in couples therapy, that we did not have a methodology that I felt was 
sophisticated enough to actually meet the needs that couples actually have, as well as be simple enough that they could use when emotions were running high and there wasn't a therapist or a referee in the room to stop them from battling it out. Mm -hmm. I was using early on all the same wonderful Western clinical modalities that most therapists were using, including, you know, nonviolent communication and, and, and I statements and all that. And I was getting traction in the room with my clients for sure. This is back in my internship days. And but I always say before before those clients got out the door and were at the elevator banks, typically that shit was going off the rails for them. They weren't able to use what we were doing in the room without some help. And mm-hmm. so they would say, can you how much to get you to come stay for a week? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that. And so I went to my my mentors, my colleagues, my cohort. And I was I asked around, you know, are you having the same experience? You know, these can't be the answers. And to a person, they would say, welcome to couples therapy. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I said, that, again, that that cannot be the answer. And so one very well-known marriage and family therapist and my mentor said, well, go. She's actually from up where you are. And so she said, go figure it out for yourself. Go. Go. Yeah, go. And, uh, <laughs> and so that's what I did. And I sort of let my clients become my textbooks in a lot of ways. And I started you know, looking at what they're actually needing rather than trying to fit something in this, this square peg in this round hole. I sort of opened myself up to what it was they needed. And so I came up with these five practices and I'll go over them ad nauseum, but they start out as mindfulness is the first practice, parts of self, the narrative, the fourth practice is choosing. And the fifth practice in what I call the common denominator practice, the one that, that, that sort of uh, supports all the others is personal responsibility. And so I used mindfulness primarily because one of the first steps in any work with couples is to de-escalate the couple cycle. That's what it says mm-hmm. in the big book. With with any mode you're using as a therapist, you have to de-escalate the couple cycle. They don't really tell you how to do that. And so mm-hmm. rather than continue to hope that that happened, I went and found mindfulness practice. It was something that I was using with my men's anger management program that I was working on in my internship as well. And it was working with them. And what mindfulness does is it just allows us to begin to pay attention to our thoughts and feelings with purpose. It allows us to take a breath, to stop and notice what's happening inside of us from a moment to moment basis. And what that does is it gets us out of our knee jerk responses to each other. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when we can learn to take that mindful pause rather than looking across the table and pointing the finger, we can start pointing the finger back at ourselves. And this takes practice. The hardest thing about mindfulness is remembering to do it. And so I would get my couples to practice mindfully every day, all of the time in their daily lives, things that were mundane, things that we didn't have to interject some new thing into their already busy lives. I was having them take mindful showers, mindful walks, mindful drives to work, just paying attention to what was going inside of them and then having them bring that into the room. And before we would start any discourse or before the arguments would erupt, I would have them stop, push pause and just notice what was going on for them. And that would have an automatic sort of titration experience for anyone who was doing it. And what we know about mindfulness is it actually shrinks the amygdala if you practice it enough, Mm. right? The fear centers of the brain. Mm -hmm. So our fear responses and our stress responses begin to lessen as we practice more mindfully. We begin to become more emotionally intelligent through this practice. But, you know, mindfulness alone was not enough. People were still going off the rails in my practice and still not practicing well together. And so I had to come up with something else. And so I started looking at parts work. And so when people come to me and they ask me, you know, when they say, you know, we have communication problems, I'll say, you don't. What you have is a parts of self problem, meaning Mm -hmm. the side of yourself, the side of your personality that's Mm -hmm. showing up to that conversation or that discourse is a part that's probably walled off, angry, frustrated or protective of oneself. Mm -hmm. And as long as that aspect of your personality stays in that 
conversation or in that Venn diagram of that conversation, it's all going to go off the rails. And quite frankly, no conversational technique that any therapist is going to hand you will help you as long as you're entrenched in that aspect. So when you're in that part of you and you're trying to have a compassionate and empathetic conversation with your partner, but your your weapon's hot, it's like it's like trying to use Instagram to send an email. You just can't do it. So we have mindfulness in parts, but I was still not quite there. Mm-hmm. People were de-escalated and they were having better conversations, but they were saying to me things like, you know, something's just missing. Mm-hmm. And what I began to notice is the stories that we tell are so important. Our thoughts, right? Our thoughts about our partners were, were really, really important because our thoughts become feelings, become our experiences, right? The mm-hmm. body and the brain are having a biochemical conversation every day, all of the time. And so we have to start paying attention to our thoughts because we were having de-escalation happening and, and the conversations were going well because we were working with parts. But every so often we're having these little not so awesome thoughts about our partner, mm-hmm. right? That are sort of the fly in the, in the relational ointment, if, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so using that mindful practice to notice what our thoughts were moment to moment, we can begin to call ourselves out and go, that's not a very loving, compassionate, or empathetic story that I'm telling about my partner. Mm-hmm. And it's creating feelings in me that are creating resentment, that are creating distance. And so what I began to do is have partners begin to reauthor, and this is a, this is a narrative therapy technique, to begin reauthoring new, more compassionate, more loving tales about one another. Mm-hmm. Because look, the story that we tell, some of it's true, some of it's not, some of it's compassionate, a lot of it's not. And so I just asked people to begin to look at the stories that they're telling and to try and tell it from a more compassionate, more empathetic place. And that began to move the needle in the right direction. But still, we weren't quite there because by and large, people tend to love the way they like to be loved. They hug the way they like to be hugged. They they kiss the way they like to be kissed. And they don't really attune to the way in which their partner experiences love. And so the fourth practice of what I call choosing comes along right? It's really attuning to what it is your partner wants and needs. And so people say, oh, you mean love languages? And I'm like, sure, if that means something to you, absolutely. Love languages, let's go with that. Mm-hmm. But the piece that love languages kind of miss is if your partner likes gifts or words of affirmation or physical touch, whatever it might be, that's actually linked to their core wounding. And we have to be really aware that it's not just something that they like, that we are in speaking that love language and, and meeting that need that they have, we are meeting a core wound and helping them heal that. Mm. And this becomes the spiritual nature of relationship. So underneath every conversation, we are asking questions. Am I safe? Am I loved? Am I enough? Do I matter? That's what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have to, that's, that's what this process gets to. It gets us below the waterline on, you know, we aren't having enough sex. You, you don't know how to parent the kids. And what are we doing with the money? All that stuff is, mildly important to me because mm-hmm. we drop down that into that water line what we get to is people asking questions like am i safe with you am i going to be loved are you going to show me that that i matter or that i'm enough and when we can mindfully look at the the aspect that's showing up mm-hmm. there that wounded part asking one of those four questions now we're cooking with gas now we're really speaking to the heart of so much that ails couples that we never really get to through traditional psychotherapy or other forms of couples work. So I got that far with those four practices of mindfulness, parts, narrative, and choosing. I still wasn't there Mm -hmm. because people were kind of like, fuck you. I don't want to do it. And so Mm -hmm. I had to like, I needed 
I needed like, something. Wait a second. <laughs> Hold on, I'm still not there, right? <laughs> right, right. And so this becomes this long, drawn-out story of how I got here. But I had to dapple in what I consider to be like a little stoicism, which is, you know, stoicism is really just Buddhism with a mohawk and some tattoos. And and what it is, is it's personal responsibility, right? Yeah, exactly. Right, right. It's own your shit. <laughs> if you want this to work, you have to stop pointing the finger at your partner and start taking responsibility for your mindfulness, for the part of you that shows up, for the story that you're telling. And am I choosing this person and recognizing them for the little wounded human being that they actually are? Right. When I can get people doing that, well, then we're practicing well. Mm-hmm. And, and when you get to that point, when you're like, okay, they're taking accountability, they're being mindful, mm-hmm. they're working mm-hmm. on their narrative. Then is that when you're like, okay, now we've made it to where we actually dive into the hardship or are you diving into the hardship the whole, whole way? Well, we're diving into the hardship the whole way, but what ends up happening is because it it feels kind of frustrating because they're like, we're kind of going over the same thing over and over again. And then all of a sudden they're like, what did you just say? And they'll say, they'll say it. And I'll be like, I've never heard you say that. And they'll be like, I fucking said that a thousand times. I'm like, no, no, you didn't. You've never said it like that. And so there's always this sort of eureka moment where something's touched into or a, a phrase is turned through this through, through these practices that someone hears something in a way that they've never heard it before. It speaks to something inside of them. And I know that sounds kind of vague, but to answer your question, we're kind of hitting those big issues again and again and again. But now with these practices, we hit it a different way. The hard shit isn't hard for the same reasons that it used to be hard, Right. It used to be hard because now you're asking me to be mindful in a place where I don't want to be. You're asking me to give up ground and take responsibility. And maybe I feel like I'm being permissive. This is hard for all the right reasons, this, this way of practicing, because it asks more of us. And quite frankly, if you love someone, you'll do it. And mm-hmm. the table of the tape for me is when someone doesn't want to, it means they don't want to with you. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. That sucks. Yeah. But it's information that we need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think when when I first learned about the practices and I first started to like, like actually practice the practices, I thought, OK, before I talk about parts of self, I need to be good at being mindful. And then before I get into my narrative, I got to really like examine the parts of self. But that's not the case. Right. No. Like you do all of it the whole time. Each one dovetails is uh, recursive and sort of falls in on the other one, right? So if I'm talking about parts, well, parts tell stories. Jung said it, right? Each part has its own beliefs, experiences, and narratives. And so if you're in a part, which you always are in a part, you're always having a narrative, right? I put them together in this way because I needed a linear process so that people could look at it and go, oh, that's what that is. These are the steps, Mm -hmm. but they're not really steps. If you start with step five, personal responsibility, shit. We're really flying now. Right. That's true. Yeah. Because now all of a sudden the space between us becomes safe enough because you're owning your stuff and and he's or she's owning her stuff. And and so it makes it really easy to practice the other ones. But I chose mindfulness first because by and large, when people have scar tissue and they're activated, they need to be de-escalated, as I said before. So mindfulness, practicing mindfully becomes a skeleton key and universal remote to all of the other practices, but none of them live without personal responsibility. And Mm. right. And you don't really have love without choosing. And that's why I kept running into those barriers as I was like, aha, mindfulness. No, we need something else. Aha, 
parts, right? No, but we can't do parts without narrative. So yeah, they right. all they all fall in because each, each other. part has its own narrative, right? Like mm-hmm. at least that that's how I have realized mm-hmm. my parts work. <laughs> yeah, and it's hard to choose someone if you are in a protective part of self, or if you're telling a story about them that's not you know particularly connective. Mm-hmm. And if you're not taking responsibility for that, then how are we doing? Mm-hmm. Or if you're right. unaware of it. Right. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone listening probably understands like mindfulness, but would you just talk a little bit about what the parts are? And we'll obviously go into d- mm, more depth yeah. in that episode. But so, you know, parts work has its roots, you know, as far back as psychotherapy starts, even even with Freud's id ego and superego at some level, we can sort of explain them away as parts. Jung then came along and had his complexes and said, we all have these complexes within us. We have to deal with our complexes and where they show up. Virginia Satir, a little bit later on, came up with a parts party and said that we all have a parts party happening in us all the time. We need to know who came to the party. And now Richard Schwartz has come up with something called internal family systems, where he sort of looks at the internal parts of ourselves as a family of aspects of self. Really, what we're talking about is how our brain works. We are compartmentalized in our brain, right? There's information and things and experiences that live in particular compartments of our brain that don't really live in others. We can be aware of them, may have other issues, but by and large, our brain is compartmentalized. And so it becomes really important to know which compartment of our brain we are in or what part of self comes up. And so, you know, in IFS, they talk about managers and protectors and firefighters, and and it's all can be important. I kind of make it a little simpler and say, we have parts of ourselves that, that, that come to protect us. And we do that in particular ways. So are you a fighter? Are you a fleer? Do you freeze up? Are you an appeaser? Right. Those are going to be and people say, well, I, you know, I flee until I have to fight, until I back down in the corner, I fight. I'm like, no, you're a fighter. You're just trying to stave off fight. You're a fighter. And so you need to know that there's a part of me that shows up that's the warrior, right? And that warrior is there to protect someone. It's the wounded child. And we've all got them frozen in the fires of the trauma of our youth at different ages, different experiences, different times. Those parts are in there and they will come up, especially in love relationships, because love relationships are so can be so brutal. They they ask so much of us. They can be so scary. But so these these defender parts will come up. We'll either we'll maybe we'll try to beat it and get out of the room and get away or we'll stand and fight or we'll appease or we'll enter another um a protective part that I like to talk about, which is the inner critic, right? And the inner critic says, I'm bad, you're bad, everyone and everything is bad. It protects us through a toxic narrative that tries to keep us safe by keeping us, you know, mm-hmm. locked in the closet. Mm-hmm. And so that's by and large how I look at it. Who's the defender coming up? Is it the warrior? Is it the person who runs and hides? Is it the inner critic? And let's also know what wounded child part is here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes really, really important in a love relationship. Yeah. And they each, as you said, it all dovetails together because each of those parts have their own narrative. And so Mm -hmm. they each have their own motivations. So talk to me a little bit about if I'm not in a part, what am I? What do you call that? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. That's the wise self, the healthy self, Mm -hmm. right? And so in the book and in the process of naming what parts of us show up, we can learn to do this in a nanosecond. And so I have my couples right before we start a conversation about something difficult, I'll say, okay, everyone take a breath, take a mindful breath and ask who's here. 
who's showing up to this conversation? And so they have to take responsibility, that fifth practice for, well, I'm, I am, I'm here and I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you, Larry. I'm angry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And so we, let's just know, is there, that guy can stick around, but can you just step aside? And typically what ends up happening is a wounded child part comes up, right? Because anger is secondary response to something else, usually our pain. That's mm-hmm. our wounding. That's our wounded child. And so there's the wounded child. And it's like, well, the other part of me is really scared about what could happen here. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid of being abandoned. Okay. We just let that part know it's going to be okay. We're just going to do a little talking here. And what ends up happening is we take this inner inventory, something almost miraculous happens. The wise self takes the seat of consciousness Mm -hmm. and suddenly we find ourselves in a more empathetic, more compassionate, more emotionally intelligent aspect of ourselves because these parts have stepped Mm -hmm. aside. Now, people say, why doesn't the wise self just take over and we do that? The wise self is very Zen. The wise self is like, I don't give a shit what experience you decide to have here. It's all grist for the mill, as so, mm-hmm. so to speak, of being human. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have an experience. We're going to have a learning experience. So let's do whatever you want to do. But mindfulness allows us to go, oh, my protector part's here. It's trying to protect me from, from the vulnerability of this person I actually want to connect with. And oh, my scared, wounded part is afraid I'm going to be abandoned or that I'm not enough. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I need to take responsibility, hold those parts in compassion and allow this other aspect in me to come forward. And so this becomes the essence of communication in my work with people. Yeah. I practice it at home. Corey practices it, my husband, mm-hmm. and he... Yeah, he needs to get him on top of that. Amen. Amen. It's honestly <laughs> embarrassing so how enlightened I am and how not enlightened he is. I don't know how you do it. Thank you. It's very it's, charitable of you. <laughs> it's a struggle. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> that bastard. <laughs> but no, it's it's I I realized that not only do I have a narrative about him, I have a narrative about myself that I bring to the table in my conversations with him. And so I think that's also something that I like to mention, especially when people are like uh, well, you know, my relationship is okay. Or, you know, it's, it's, they think, well, my relationship is the problem and really pause for a second. What are you bringing to the table? Like you said, with personal responsibility, like what are the narratives that you have about yourself that maybe you're projecting onto them or whatever the situation might be mm-hmm. that is going to prevent you from being a better partner and being aware of what you're bringing to the table with your baggage mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a choose your own adventure with yeah. regard to narrative, right? So we, we mm-hmm. buy into it. And, and so if you're in a protective part of yourself or in an inner critic, that story will be like, is that my sweetheart that left the milk out again for the second time this week? Cause they're so tired. Mm-hmm. No, probably not. Mm-hmm. No, it's going to be, there's that no account son of a bitch who only thinks about themselves. Uh, right. 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 Yeah. And people think, well, yeah, but it's, it's, it's no big deal. It's happening in here. They don't know. Corey doesn't know that, right? Oh, he knows. But, <laughs> yeah, no, I let him know. Um, <laughs> he sees the look. Yeah. Um, the disdain. I just come at him with like this energy and he's like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, and then he goes, what's your story? What narrative are you telling yourself? You're pruning again. You're pruning. Yeah, exactly. You've pruned out that I'm awesome. <laughs> and that you're lucky to be with me. Right? Yeah, I sure do prune that out. <laughs> you prune the shit out of that. Yeah. Mr. Miyagi on that little plant. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, look at it. It went just the way I wanted it to. <laughs> and that's what we do with stories, right? And so yeah. 
David Epson and Michael White back in the 80s, you can forget those names as soon as I mentioned them, they founded narrative therapy. And, and narrative therapy has a lot of detractors because there's not been a lot of quantitative studies of it done. What, what I liked about it is it just rings true just as a human being. It's like, yeah, my the stories that I tell about any one thing tend to be the place that my mind goes. And I prune really important information mm -hmm. out. Right. And that's what they said. We prune the narrative, selecting information that supports our prevailing narrative and deselecting information that does not. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is also based on parts. But let's stay with the narrative. And so when we stop and we push pause and we go, wait, what is that fair? That's because mm -hmm. I did this. I was doing this and I watched like as, as I was starting to tell some not so great stories early on in my relationship with my wife, which were designed to protect me from vulnerability. And I had done that with person after person after person before her really good relationships by and large. Um, some clunkers, but I had done that and I, I noticed that I was doing it and I was like, I don't want to do that to her. And mm -hmm. so I stopped and I started looking at it from a narrative therapy perspective because I have to be studying narrative therapy in school. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm doing this thing. And I actually have some choice in the matter if I really take it. Mm -hmm. And so when I would notice a negative narrative about her come up, I would say, is that fair? And I'd be like, no, I mean, some of it is, but a lot of it's not. And what's more is, does it create distance or does it create closeness? Everything we do, everything we say, everything we think is designed to do one of two things, to create distance or to create closeness. Oh, I was going to say, which I think is a great segue into choosing, because I think a lot of people don't understand what that means either. What are you what are you telling me when you're telling me I have to practice choosing, choosing what, you know? Well. In your case, Corey. <laughs> well, choosing is people say, um, and I and I and I and I started forming this. I started doing. I had a rash of doing weddings, right? Like marrying people, like friends. Somehow found that this would be the energy in the face they wanted their wedding to look like. I'm not sure what that was about. It's about the pictures. It looks good. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, you don't I did want some dopey looking priest. <laughs> right. So and I was like, what am I going to say? And so I was thinking about it and I was also studying emotionally focused therapy and the work of Sue Johnson and also John Bowlby and, you know, how we connect and, and all of that. And I was so I was sort of puzzled by this, this, this the, these connections and what this is, this love and how love presents itself. And we choose each other and we choose each other on the big day or in these important moments in life. No, we actually don't. Those are for everybody else to witness. We choose each other in the little moments of life or we don't. And so we can mm -hmm. find choosing in a cup of coffee made just the way she likes it. We can find choosing in that moment when, you know, no, no, no. I know that you've been woken up three times already tonight with a dirty diaper. It's my turn. I got you. Choosing says mm -hmm. I got your back. It says, I know how mm -hmm. you like to be loved and I'm going to reach and stretch uh, through benevolence, through kindness, through compassion. I'm going to go from a me-centered way of thinking to at least a we-centered way of thinking about us and our life together, where I consider you as much and sometimes more than I consider myself. I'm going to send the message that I'm going to be there for you and I'm thinking of you even when you're not there. Mm -hmm. But how does that translate in particular, in your case, for Corey or for Corey? to you. Like there are specific mm -hmm. things that you guys want and need to know that register within you as uh, acts of service that yeah. mean something to yeah. your individual hearts. They mean something oddly enough because of your wounding. Right. And so the other side of the pillow on this love piece is our wounding. And so when someone speaks to that thing, like, you know, I know that by and large, because of my wife's upbringing, she would not mind me sharing it because I shared it a thousand times with millions of people. Because of her wounding, the world is often an unsafe place. The people who were supposed mm -hmm. to love her the most in the world were not. And 
so are you still there? Yeah, oh, you're frozen. Right. You don't see me. Yeah, your 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 picture's frozen. Oh, weird. That's okay. You're perfect. Um, so yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> shit. I walked right into that. <laughs> so uh where where was I? Yeah, and so the world's an unsafe place. So part of loving her is to make sure that I know that at some level she always needs to know that the world is a safe place, or at least I'm a safe place. Mm. If that makes sense. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's very similar with Corey. He wasn't loved the way he should have been. And so Mm. it took a long time for him to tell me that. And like for him to really give me some of the dirty details of that. And the minute he did, though, I was like, I wish I had known this years ago. <laughs> I was right. like, right. I get it now. I get why. Well, isn't, it so you know? much, isn't it so much easier to find compassion for the little boy in him that wasn't loved the way he needed to be loved than it is for the guy who's being like, why are you being such a shitbag? Yes, 100%. Yep. 100%. Mm-hmm. The moment you know. Well, and I think, you know, whenever you love somebody and you hear that someone did them dirty, so to speak, you want to be the person that doesn't. You know, and so knowing those woundings helped me frame his anger or helps me frame, you know, what probably is bad behavior in the relationship in terms of fighting or the way you fight or whatever. And so it mm-hmm. it made a big difference. And, and it also helps me to be like, OK, I, I realize this conversation, the way I just said that was not the right way to say it. It triggered something in you. So let's take a step back, you know, and he does the same thing with me because I, I, you know, I have issues with my dad and he'll be like, okay, I get it. You know, so it makes a big difference. Just sometimes I think what I learned about choosing is that it's not just choosing to do something for somebody or choosing to spend time with them. It's also choosing to make space for their issues when it's hard. It's well said. When it's hard, mm-hmm. when it's inconvenient. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly. I can't tell you how many partners that come in and they will say out loud, well, you know, that's your work. That's your work. And I'm like, no, it fucking isn't. Mm-hmm. It's our work. Mm-hmm. Why do you want to silo off into that? And like, well, I don't want to become codependent. That word has been thrown around a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. for me, there is a spiritual aspect to this. And I don't necessarily mean, you know, God, unless that means something to you, but the soul comes together for healing, for integration of the parts that have been splintered off through this. You know, butcher this quote all the time from Harville Hendricks, who said, we are inexplicably drawn into the arms of a romantic partner who will recapitulate our childhood wounding, but for a very good reason, mm-hmm. so that we can have a reparative experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely true. It's like, well, man, you know, this person's looking, feeling, and smelling remarkably like my dad. Well, right. yeah. And how that person mm-hmm. wounded you. question is, did we pick somebody who is emotionally intelligent with it enough to notice, oh, I'm doing that and I, and I want to I do it differently. And, and so I'm going to show you that it's safe enough, that, that you're loved, that you're safe, that it, you're enough and that you matter. Mm. I love that. So when when clients come and see you and obviously they're just starting out, maybe they've done a session or two, what do you tell them to work on when they go home? Mm-hmm. Having listened to this podcast now, what should people do with this information? Hmm. So to truly answer your question, I would say very often I will look at what is ailing them. Like what's the presenting problem that brings them in the room? Hmm. And so 
if it's they're arguing and it kind of always starts with mindfulness, mm. right? Being able to pay attention to your own thoughts and your own feelings and stop pointing the finger for a minute gets us out of our knee jerk responses. But if it's something like communication, I'll have them look at parts. Mm. If I notice that there's just sort of a divide between them and there's just something not right, like that something's missing, that phantom thing. We don't really know why we're here. We just know there's a problem. I'll have them look at the story that they're telling. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've obviously worked with this stuff a lot, so I can stand back and go, let's play this card now and that card then. By and large, we should start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. You can't really move too far into this stuff without being mindful and aware. What I found is it's like so many of the Western modalities that I was taught that are wonderful and good and all the things that you even see in popular psychology that have a, a sort of a Western tint to them, whatever they are, they've forgotten to bring in something that makes us stop and notice what we're doing that we need to change. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness does that. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the impetus. It's the ramp mm-hmm. for, for change. And so mm-hmm. without it, we're sort of at a loss. We don't even realize we're doing what we're doing because we're not mindful. Mm-hmm. We're not there enough to know we aren't mm-hmm. there. And so we're just doing the thing. We have to stop and notice like, oh, I'm being that dick that I don't want to be. Right. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Something with mindfulness that you had taught me is I also feel my emotions physically. So you'll be like, where are Mm -hmm. you feeling that in your body? And I'm like, go away, Lair. (laughs) (laughs) Take that shit elsewhere. (laughs) Yeah, because you. You're one of the smartest people mm. I know, and you like to think about your, you want to think your way out of yes, how you feel. 100%. Because you don't want to feel anymore. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I'll spiral yeah. my way out of it one way or another. Yeah. Here's a good idea. <laughs> I don't have to feel any of that nonsense. And then you're like, wait, where do you feel in this? And I'm like, in my chest. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you start crying. And everyone's like, oh, I thought, I said, anyways, I love this one. I said I wasn't going to cry. And I'm like, dude, why do you always make me cry? And I'm like, it's not a goal. I don't believe that. But it's that. a catharsis. It's a, it's a process, it's right? Like it comes out of us. Oh man. It's like most people, if they're honest, it feels pretty good to have mm. a good cry. I just finally get that energy mm-hmm. out. But somehow we've right. decided that that's right. a weakness and it's just not, it's just your feelings are chemical responses in your body, you know, mm-hmm. below your neck, mm-hmm. typically in response to some shit that's mm-hmm. going on up here. If we don't stop and feel into them, then they don't go anywhere. They just sort of live. And that's why there's, there's a book called The Body Keeps mm-hmm. the Score, which is tells you how the how your body holds all your trauma, all the shit you were afraid I'm to process. I'm taking that off my to-read list because I know it's going to hit too close to home. <laughs> have you not read it? No, I haven't. No, but now I'm going to have Oof. to. Yeah. It's a house of horrors. <laughs> I hate everything <laughs> about it already. <laughs> yeah. You'll actually like it because it's... You know, he's he's really smart. He, his delivery is good. Yeah. yeah. It has to feel good, mm-hmm. though, that you have this energy about you, that you create a space where people who have been conditioned not to be OK with crying actually are OK with crying. Mm-hmm. That says mm-hmm. something about yeah. you as a person, seriously, mm-hmm. that you can make that space for people. I think that's really cool and important. Yeah, I, I, well, in in school, I went to two different schools. I, I've I've often referred to the first school I went to. It's it's called the Helix Training Program. It was like going to Hogwarts. It was not like my clinical studies at all. This is a place where they taught us to create mm-hmm. that space, mm-hmm. right? And as corny as it may sound, to create the mm-hmm. container, the therapeutic container. And you're like, what is that? It's the energy that you hold, the spaciousness that you hold mm-hmm. as a therapist. We get to do a whole new yeah. show on just that. I would love to do that because I, um, think, I think it's interesting. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting what you teach your clients about 
the practices, but I also think it's interesting how you use the practices yourself mm-hmm. as a therapist mm-hmm. and how you create these spaces and how you've learned to do that through your training. Mm-hmm. Some of it's just energy. Mm-hmm. 100%. You know, some of it, it's also what part of me shows mm-hmm. up there, right? Because if I show, obviously, if I show up in a part of me that is critical, frustrated, it's going to be a different mm-hmm. vibe. Yeah. But the, the the space I try to show up in, in is, is one of spaciousness and compassion. It was um, Carl Rogers who sort of turned therapy on its head when he said that the client is looking for the thing that they did not get, unconditional positive regard. He really started this sort of humanist movement Mm. in therapy and sort of moving away from that very sort of clinical lay on the couch with your back to me. And I'm probably looking at my mail, but okay. (laughs) And that. mm -hmm, Yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the gentle Um, scratch of a pen on a notepad and you're just like, this is. Oh God. Which is really just me telling up all the money. (laughs) (laughs) Being shit. He he created this, the idea of this client centered Mm -hmm. approach. Client is a human being and you know, they didn't get mm-hmm. something. They didn't get the, the unconditional positive regard that we all mm-hmm. crave as kids. And so there's a wound there. And so as a therapist, you try to hold space. Uh, you're a little bit of a placeholder and perhaps you are for the moment giving them that sense that you are loved, you are safe, you are enough and you do matter mm-hmm. because all of us do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think this was a great overview of the practices. I think this is... I hope so. This is exactly what we need to get started. And obviously, week after mm-hmm. week, we'll dive in deep to the practices. And then, you know, we'll go on off the rails, I'm sure, more than a few times. We didn't today. We did really well. We were, I think, well behaved. Honestly, I'm a little upset about it. It's not our brand. <laughs> I think we should do it again. <laughs> It's no, it's off brand for you and I. We need to re-record because this was just. There needs to be at least one story of a monkey thank throwing you. poop. Thank you. This was too professional. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they got way too much out of it. <laughs> I want them to be, I, I want our listeners to listen to our podcast and wonder why it's in the therapy category. That's <laughs> that's our goal. It's our mission statement. To get, maybe to get right, shot. right. See, yeah. Thank you for joining mm-hmm. me right. today. Thanks Absolutely. for having me. I'm excited for next week. Not to therapy. Yeah, me too. What uh, What do you think? I think we'll talk we're going to go. Well, we can divert from the practices for a minute and um, mm-hmm. actually dive into creating a space for your clients because I think mm-hmm. I think that that is actually really important for people to hear because a lot of people don't cut their therapists loose fast enough if they're not working out right. Thank you. And so mm-hmm. when you hear from somebody who actually knows how to create this space, what it's actually supposed to feel like, it's much easier mm-hmm. to realize that's not the space I have. <laughs> My space mm-hmm. is him mm-hmm. scrabbling on a notebook and like, or whatever, you know? So Ooh, I think that's, right. Or not taking any responsibility. Yeah, I've had, and we can talk about it too. I've had clients come in and be like, uh, I don't know about therapy anymore. I'm trying someone new because I feel like, you know, my friend pushed me to. Oh, tell me about your last therapy. Well, um, yeah. she fell asleep in session. Yeah. And then oh didn't know. Huh. Yeah. Okay. I once had a therapist yeah. start doing her nails during my session. So <sighs> yeah, I've got some good ones. <laughs> Those are really good. <laughs> like when you're sitting there Shit. talking about your trauma and she's <laughs> I'm like, nope, nope. Mm, boy, that just, I'm telling you right now, my I know. skin, I can't I even, know. 
it's, it's so I know, uncomfortable. I know. So I, I think that's a really important topic to talk about. And then I do want to do deeper dives into the practices as we go yeah. along, because I think that there is so much more we can say about them. So, okay. yeah. So thank you all for joining us for Not Your Mama's Therapy. Please like, subscribe, review us on all of your favorite podcast channels. We will see you next week for more therapy fun and off-brand, off-color humor, most likely as well. (laughs) (laughs) On-brand, off-color humor. (laughs) On-brand, right. No more of this off-brand crap. (laughs) 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 (laughs)